0: for the Wise podcast. This is your host, Ezra Siddiqui. As a reminder, Wise Up is my platform from the South Asian community about Texas and national politics. You can find us on all forms of social media, such as Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, our handle's at Wise You can check out our website, wiseuptx.com. You can listen to our podcast segments on TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, and iTunes. And last but not least, our segments are also aired on Monday mornings on Radio Azad and Coffee Mornings with Aisha. Remember, everyone, let's get educated, let's get wiser, and let's start giving a hoot. All right, everybody, I'm really excited about today's interview. It is with Rabia Chaudhry. Um, If you listened to season one of the Serial Podcast, um, she was the person behind it who brought Adnan Said's story to Sarah Koenig, which ended up being one of the most downloaded podcasts ever with 100 million downloads. Um, While Rabia felt that The podcast didn't cover everything Um, in Adnan's case. She further went on to be the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Adnan's Story. And now um, there is an HBO docuseries coming out um, on March 10th, The Case Against Adnan Syed, and she's an executive producer of it. So... Before the documentary comes out, um, which is in less than a week, I'm excited to have this interview with her so that we can learn more about what the documentary will be about. Um, It's four parts and um, also gain her perspective on some of the criminal justice issues uh, that occurred in Adan's case that um, may not be... um, what you may find is unique and is actually more prevalent within our criminal justice system um, than you can imagine. Um, But first, before we get into the interview and about criminal justice issues, I wanted to pivot to the Texas legislature, what's happening in Austin and um, some of the important news there. So first of all, the biggest thing that's been happening, um, is in the Texas Senate, David Whitley, who is currently, um, nominated um, by Governor Abbott to be the Secretary of State. He needs two-thirds of support from the Texas Senate to be confirmed. And he's faced a lot of opposition, especially from the Texas Democrats, who have so far as a block stated that they will not um, vote him in. But he is unwilling to step down and is working with Governor Abbott to gain favor with the Democrats um, to get the vote that he needs. Now, you may be wondering why is there opposition? Well, about a month ago, His office, um, while he was um, as Secretary of State, because he was um, appointed by Governor Abbott until he gets the vote, um, flagged 100,000 registered voters as non-citizens, but when um, it was reviewed, the claim kind of fell apart because it seemed that there were many that were citizens or were naturalized citizens. So many voter right groups uh, were very much opposed to this and um, really have worked hard to try and block his um, confirmation. Now, if he's going to be successful to get some of the Democratic Senators to vote for him, um, he may be able to get through. If not, I think this is going to be an interesting take to look at simply because Democrats um, have not had that much power um, in the Texas legislature and this would be one of their biggest tests to see if they are able to consolidate their power um, to go against something um, that leadership is really trying the Republican leadership is really trying to push for so I will definitely keep a watch on that and don't worry we will continue to be posting it on a uh, social media to make sure y'all are informed um, The other thing that's happening in the Texas legislature that I wanted to discuss are some of the bills that would be impacting the South Asian community. One of them is going to be HB 793, and that is relating to certain government contracts with companies that boycott Israel. Now, you may have heard in the news that last legislative session, this type of bill had passed, and then um, there were... Muslims that were wanting to be teachers and found this clause in their contract, and uh, they very much opposed it. And it's and there have been lawsuits against it. So the author of the previous bill has refiled it again this this session, and um, he is trying to narrow the scope of it, not applying to individuals but applying to much bigger uh, companies. Um, it'll be up. Interesting to see if this bill also passes after um, the pushback that it has received after it passed last session. Um, Another bill is HB 915. That's relating to the sale of fireworks during and before the Diwali holiday. And then there is HB 1870 relating to prohibiting certain conduct intended to intimidate or interfere with a person seeking or providing health care services or attending an established place of religious worship. As we all know, um, there have been those that have demonstrated outside of the mosques. Um, and uh, I think this bill is going to help uh, kind of temper those types of situations. And then another bill that I think will be very detrimental to the South Asian community is HB 2468. It's relating to proof of U.S. citizenship for the issuance or renewal of a personal automobile insurance policy. So if passed, this bill will impact those who carry a green green card or an H-1B visa. And we know that uh, there are several South Asians on H-1B visas as well as carrying green cards. Um, I don't really understand how this bill is going to be beneficial to our state. It seems like it's more detrimental to the state as a whole that we have this type of legislation of people not having automobile insurance at all, Um, or a certain group of people. So... Again, um, these are some bills that we have um, been keeping track of, and don't worry, we're continuously posting on social media as to what's been happening with them. They have only been filed, they've not been passed, and so what we recommend is that uh, if you love or hate a bill, call your state reps and senators about it. Um, You can find that information if you go to our website where it says um, find your representatives and click there and enter in your address and find out who they are so that you can give them a phone call. All right, moving on, Um, in terms of Wise Up Texas news, we rolled out our first newsletter this past week. Um, If you would like to get it, um, it includes some of the information uh, that we've told you guys about, about the Texas legislature, but we have it in a little bit more detail. Um, You can send us an email at contact at wiseuptx.com. All right, so to all my women listeners out there, I want to wish you a happy Women's History Month. Um, Every year in March, um, this month, is highlighting the contributions of women in society. And so this month at Wise Up Texas, we will have um, podcast interviews from women fighting for various social justice causes, and even those that are running for office. And so today we have Rabia Chaudhry, who is an attorney and law partner At the Chaudhry and Unward Immigration Law Firm based in Northern Virginia, where she supervises asylum cases and immigration appeals. She is well known as a co-host and co-producer of the hit criminal justice podcast, Undisclosed, with nearly 300 million downloads. The author of the New York Times bestselling book, Adnan's Story, and and an executive producer of HBO docuseries, The Case Against Adnan Syed. She is a vanguard board member of the Aspen Institute, fellow of the Truman National Security Project, a fellow of the Shalom Hartman Institute, and on the board of the Muslim Jewish Adv- Advisory Council. She is a frequent w- writer and public speaker on issues of criminal justice, national security, civil rights, and faith. All right, folks, let's now listen to what Robio Chaudhry has to say. Joining us today is Rabia Chaudhary. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, thanks for having me on.
0: So um, we heard so much about the Adnan Saeed case from the Serial Podcast. I was an avid listener, and then afterwards you came out with a New York Times bestseller. Do you mind giving, for those of my listeners who haven't kept up um, with Adnan's case, just an overview of where his case, you know, where it started, how it began, how it's, you know, what's been happening and the latest update.
1: Okay, so I'll start with kind of where it all began, which is in 1999 in Baltimore, Maryland. um, Adnan said it was uh, a 17-year-old high school senior at the time at Woodlawn High School, and the classmate of his, a young girl by the name of Heyman Lee, disappeared one day after school. And about uh, a month later, her body was found. Um, She had been strangled and her body had been dumped in a local park, Uh, and it was a horrific crime. And her and Adnan had dated for about six months the prior year. And so very early on in the investigation, I knew Adnan since he was 13 years old. Um, I have a younger brother named Saad, and Adnan and Saad were best friends since they were 13, 14. So I used to see Adnan all the time. Uh, I was in law school at the time, and um, I wasn't a lawyer, but I was one of the very few South Asians that I knew in law school in the 90s. And so I was just horrified um, because about a month after they found her body, they arrested Adnan for the crime. Okay. And the theory of the the crime was that she broke up with him and he was the angry Muslim man who had to honor kill his partner. Um, Now, she had a current boyfriend at the time, they did not investigate him, there were lots of leads they didn't look at, Adnan had a completely clear record, you know, great kid, Everybody in the community loved him, he was a very gentle, very sweet boy, um, he had never been in trouble and, just, you know, honor roll suit and all those things. Wanted to go to medical school and it destroyed his life. He was convicted, um, they brought up his, his Pakistani background, he was born and raised in America, but they brought uh-huh. up his Pakistani background and his religion 300, t- 300 times the trial. And, uh, this was before 9-11, so people think there was no, you know, Islamophobia before them, but there was. Yeah, and he was convicted. He was convicted, and he was sentenced to life plus thirty years as a juvenile, which is also now the Supreme Court says un- unconstitutional. Right. Um. So you know, for now, because I was in law school at the time, I I obviously couldn't represent him. and I wouldn't. He, he needed a really good lawyer. Um, the community rallied. We raised money. Got him a lawyer. Um, for lots of reasons, the lawyer failed him. Um, she was very sick, and about a year later she died, and she even was disbarred, um, so she she really failed him. Um, and I, for the, for, the, for the last 20 years, have been working with the family to help him try to win an appeal and get a new trial. Right. And we just, we weren't, we weren't nothing was happening. We kept losing every appeal. And finally I said, you know, I'm going to go to a journalist. Uh, and I went and I found this journalist named Sarah Koenig, she was a radio producer, produced a podcast at This American Life, or, or I'm sorry, produced radio shows. And she did; she investigated for about ten months, and then she came back to me and said, "We're going to turn this up, into a podcast." And that podcast became Serial, which was the first season of Serial right. in 2000, 2015, I think it was, or was it 14? But it just blew up. It was the; it, it still is the biggest podcast in history. That led to me, along with a non who's still in prison, obviously. Um, he is now. Thirty-eight, um, writing this book together, it became a New York Times bestseller, and uh, that has that was an option to make a documentary series, which will begin airing on HBO on March 10th. Um, now, that's in you know, all the publicity, which has been very important for the case itself, because we won the last two appeals and his conviction was overturned two times okay but every time it yeah every time it gets overturned the state appeals it and so we have to keep fighting so we're 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 the last appeal basically this is we're just waiting for the court to make a decision in the final appeal and in we we think we'll win it for the third time too and um i really do believe he'll come home this year
0: so essentially you guys are waiting for a new trial am i correct we are
1: waiting court to decide uh, whether he wins this appeal. If he wins this appeal, the state can decide either they, if they have to give him a trial or they have to let him go. That's the only option. They
0: oh, okay. But it's been pending for about two years, right? Like they haven't made a decision?
1: No, no. Um, this latest appeal has been, the hearing was just in November. It was okay. filed last summer. So it's been, in some stage of appeal at different courts for the last three years. For you. I mean, for years, really. I mean, but we won the last two appeals, and then we won an
0: appeal last summer, and the state appealed it again, and that's where we are now. Oh, wow. So, you know, I'm going to uh, talk about, you know, the book that you had written, and you stated that a nonstrial trial really impacted you. And, you know, I think our community doesn't really talk about criminal justice reform that much as a uh, a policy that we really care about, right? I don't think we see it as something that really impacts our community. Um, but I still think we should care about it just as a whole, as a humanistic situation, because I do think our criminal justice system is broken. There's so many issues. But, you know, I want to ask you when you say, that Adnan's case in particular impacted you, like, do you think the injustices he faced is an isolated incident, or do you think these cases are prevailing in other cases? So in other words, do you think there's an overall failure in the criminal justice system today?
1: Yeah, Adnan's case um, is not uncommon. Uh, you know, across the board, the reason there's been, and there has always been a need for criminal justice reform is because of the racial dynamics in this country you know, what what was slavery became Jim Crow, became the criminal justice system and the school-to-prison pipeline. When you look at sentencing issues, when you look at incarceration rates, they are so much higher. I mean, there are communities that are criminalized, communities of color that are criminalized for behaviors that white communities are not criminalized for. I'll give you an example. You go to downtown Baltimore, like where I live in the suburbs, you know, I'm surrounded by people who are mostly affluent, I can hang out outside. I can hang out all day can't do that downtown in a poor colored community because it's called loitering and I'll get arrested for it. So when you criminalize the behavior of certain communities, what you do is you put them behind bars, right? You make sure they cannot make bail. You destroy their families. They lose their jobs. They lose their houses. This is a systemic issue. What A non-faith also is very, very typical of wrongful conviction cases. And wrongful conviction cases, there are hundreds and thousands of people, maybe more, in our prisons. That don't belong there because they were wrongfully convicted and his case is so so typical it has all the hallmarks of a wrongful conviction so it's not an isolated incident it was a big shock to our community because muslims like we don't do this the truth is that just like for years i practiced immigration law and for years i would try to get muslim community involved in immigration reform and they're like well that's not our problem that's like the latino problem right are you crazy are you crazy and and you know what this administration has shown us how it's our problem uh, it's always been our problem, and so is criminal justice. Because if you look at even post nine
0: eleven terrorism cases, same thing, same thing. The bias is held against communities of color. It's our problem, right? And um, you know, and then you further stated in your book that you know Islamophobia played a huge role in the prosecution's case, and, and you stated this a little bit earlier. Um, so, do you mind giving us a, a few examples of how you know how the prosecution... Prosecution used his religion and his ethnic background against him. And do you feel other cultural t- traditions have a negative impact on the majority of criminal cases?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll give you a couple examples. At Bond bail hearing, um, again, he's 17 years old, has no criminal history. The entire community, you know, backed him. And what happened was at the bail hearing, there were like hundreds of people from the community there—businessmen, doctors, imams and 12 people put up their house for collateral. 12 people, that never happens. Like, yeah. in most cases, in most cases for bail hearing, nobody shows up. And so many people were backing him and vouching for him. But you know what the prosecutor said? The prosecutor said that the reason this guy is a flight risk is because this whole community backs him. Because in their community, in their religion, this is not something that is, like, that is seen as a bad thing, like killing, killing your female partner, domestic violence or honor killings, like this is like part of their culture. She actually said that there is a pattern of Pakistani males in America who kill their partners and flee, and then we cannot extradite them. She actually said that in court. Wow. Later,
0: I was mean, so blatantly apologize. racist, right? So racist, so
1: racist. And you know, we were like, well, here's his passport. He, he was been he to Pakistan once when he was 10. And the community was shocked because, like I said, upstanding citizens putting up their houses. And what she's saying is that this whole community is complicit. This whole community. And the police's theory of the case was not only that not killed her, but that people in, there were people in the community who knew it and helped cover it up.
0: Wow. It's so crazy to think that. I mean, and we still see it current day, like, you see all these, like, articles coming out of just how blatantly racist people are. Like, the yeah. stuff that they can say, especially at the fact that this can happen, like, in court, in public, you know? Like, a lot of stuff you hear is right. kind of, like, behind the scenes. But this is right, something that's being, being argued, like, in front yeah. of hundreds of people that were there, right? Yeah. The and the it's on the record. Out.
1: There's a 12-page memo that the prosecution had in their files that was written by a cultural consultant. It was a woman who makes it, who has made it her life's work. You know, one of those cottage industry Islamophobes to, like, write about Muslims and Muslim culture. So they had a 12-page memo that she wrote for the case where she said basically, like, you know, Islam is a religion of violence against women that one time Adnan gave his ex-girlfriend a scarf as a gift, and she's like, when a, when a Muslim man gives a woman a scarf, it means he owns her. What? Was, uh, e- egregious, exactly. And that's what I said when I read it. I was like, what? <laughs> what are you and,
0: and this was, was this handed to the jury?
1: Uh, this was not handed to the jury, but it was the prosecution had it and they built a case on it. This was part of the you know, actual case file. This is
0: part of official record. Wow. So, I mean, as egregious as this is, what, I mean, how do you think the justice system can overcome hurdles like this? Obviously, this type of stuff happens to other communities of color. Like, I'm sure it happens to African American community, the, the Latino community. Like, I mean, what is it that can be done about this?
1: Well, look, I mean, you know, the remedy for these issues is often also going to be found in court, just like with the Muslim ban. You have to litigate against it. You know, the, the, one of the best Things that could have been done in this case, and it wasn't done, unfortunately, was to raise constitutional challenges. It, it is unconstitutional to hold somebody's religion against them. Right. Um, and so raising constitutional challenges because then that sets precedent to make sure courts don't do it again. But another very important thing to do is to get some good training. Um, you know, I, I have done training for lawyers and, and, and bar associations on bias in the legal system and the criminal system and how. At every step of the way whether it's a prosecutor who decides i'm going to charge this person with this many counts, i'm going to ask for this sentence but just show them the statistics and ask how do you account for this how do you account for a white man going to prison for half the time that a black man's going to prison for the same crime like you know like really hold your these people accountable um and and, and keep the data going data is important but training is important i mean the thing is the, the
0: the upside of systemic problems is that you can then have systemic fixes. Right. So, what can we, as like the DC community, do about this whole criminal justice system? Like, we know that there's injustices happening. Um, is there anything that we can do as a community to ensure that these types of injustices don't keep occurring?
1: all I think it's imperative for the community to think about these issues as a real serious issue. Whether or not you know a Muslim in prison. And by the way, in any given state nearly twenty five percent of the prison population identifies themselves as Muslim because many, many black uh, men who are incarcerated will convert in prison. There are huge Muslim populations inside the state prison system, number one. Number two, think about it from an Islamic perspective. How many times, like we know from our Muslim tradition, in the Qur'an does it talk about prisoners and, you know, how you treat prisoners and freeing prisoners all so, Like, take it as seriously as we do, you know, like feeding the homeless and, and building habitats for humanity and health care and all these other issues we're now getting into. Uh, and support the work of the professionals who have been doing it. We don't need to recreate the wheel. There are people who have been doing this work for decades. Uh Support them. Support them. Vote in the right people in office. The most powerful person in the system is the district attorney. And um, in many jurisdictions, the same person will have held that position forever. They keep running, and nobody's running against them. You know, get the right people in that position. It makes all the difference. You just have to to find out who's doing the work locally and support them.
0: Yeah, so uh, I want to kind of hone in. You are talking about district attorneys. Um, Do you mind giving just a quick overview of how much power they hold in terms of these Um, types of cases?
1: Yeah, they hold all the power. You want criminal justice reform? Forget top-down. Forget legislation. Forget anything get the right person in power the district attorney decides but a police officer can arrest somebody uh-huh. the, DA, the the district attorney decides whether they're actually going to prosecute that person whether they're going to drop the charges and if they prosecute them what are they going to charge them with you know i'll give you an example um of how um, one district attorney can make a difference Philadelphia mm-hmm. is a is a historically corrupt Criminal justice system. I mean, decades and decades of corruption, so okay. many wrongful convictions, so much police brutality. Last year, or year, no, two years ago, a man named Larry Krasner ran for district attorney. He was not a prosecutor, he was a criminal defense attorney who actually had sued the Philadelphia Police Department 75 times in his career. Wow. And it, for the first time, you had somebody from outside the system who had experienced it on the other side through his clients run for district attorney, and he won. So he goes in, you know what he did? He fired half the prosecutors in there that he knew a dirty prosecutor. He made a list of police officers and he said, These are corrupt police officers, I will they will never be allowed to testify in one of our cases. Wow. He, he said, I will never ever prosecute a marijuana offense. Mhm. He said, No more cash bail. I mean in six months he turned the system upside down. One person. So that's how much power a DA has. And he said He told the prosecutors that were left in his office, he said, if you are asking for a 10-year sentence for a defendant, you have to justify to me how much money we're going to spend incarcerating. You have to show me it's going to cost this much money. We could hire this many teachers for the city with that money. Why this person? Like, you can't just say, I want the maximum sentence for everybody. You have to justify it. So, he's pretty amazing.
0: That is. And um, I know, like, in Texas, like, Criminal justice reform is is coming up as a, as a bit of a topic on the Texas legislature. Like there's talks about decriminalizing marijuana, and I believe like Dallas has already taken the steps to to not start arresting, but to start issuing fines instead of arresting right. people. And so, right. um, and I think that's like the Dallas, you know, the DA is implementing these types of. Um, regulations and so i think that's why i don't think you know i think you know this past election season and i'm talking from a texas perspective like everyone focused on the beto race like on the senate race but our community needs to realize like those down ballot races every single one of them is so vital and so important even though you don't think it is you know oh it's very important
1: there's a lot of power there yeah
0: right so um I think, you know, the work that you've done, you've been such an inspiration, you know, being a Nansai's biggest supporter. You're such a social justice fighter. And, you know, I wanna ask you, you know, you said it's been twenty years, what has kept you motivated to continue this fight? Like you've made other podcasts talking about criminal justice issues, like I mean, seriously, like how do you do it?
1: <laughs> Look, I mean When you look at kind of how wrongfully convicted people are exonerated, take any case, it's almost always one person who just won't let go. It almost always takes 18, 20, 25, 30 years sometimes. But it requires one person on the outside who's like, I'm not going to walk away. Um, And the truth is, once you know a person, you know a human being, like I know it's not, I know this case, I can't just be like, well, I tried, I'm sorry, you're just going to have to die there. Like that's why i'm going to tell him that you're just going to have to die there if i stop fighting for you and mm-hmm. there's no way i can do it i can't do that i can't do it to his family and i don't and i also know he doesn't belong there um, Right. so for me you know I, i'm fueled by a lot of anger at the system by just the injustice of them destroying his life his family's life and even the fact that the victim didn't get justice her killer is out there her killer has lived free for 20 years and so um you know but, but it just, it requires you to, if you know, if you know these people, and we don't, people think of people in prison like animals. Right. But they're human beings, and there's so many wonderful, good people, and even people who went in who are terrible, they have often become wonderful people. Um, you can't
0: walk away from them then. Um, with your latest, you know, situation in, in bringing Adnan Syed's case, you know, into light, you've partnered with?
1: Amy Berg yeah.
0: Yeah, so I know it comes out like um, Sunday, March tenth, and um, I'm, I'm really excited to to watch it. Do you mind giving us, you know, a broad overview without giving away too much about what the documentary is going to be about?
1: Yeah, so you know, when my book was going to be off, when my book was going to be published and it was announced that it was coming out, uh, I was immediately contacted by Jamai Khan, and I'm sure many of your listeners know who Jamai Khan is. She's the former wife of the Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan. Um, and she she produces amazing documentaries, and she said, you know what, I want to make, I want to auction your book and make this documentary because I believe he's innocent, and I think something really terrible has gone on here, so she, her production house hired Amy Berg, and Amy, Amy Berg is Oscar nominated, and she has done incredible work on other cases, um, so for the last three and a half years, I've been working with Amy and her team, you know, just helping to the extent that I can, but they did the work independently, I didn't interfere, um, to investigate the case, to interview witnesses who haven't spoken before, to really figure out what the truth is and whether or not he belongs in prison. Um, so it's a four-part series, okay. it will air every Sunday night on HBO um, at 9 p.m. and um, it starts March 10th and uh, I think it's going to be the final this is the final blow to the state's case to prove innocence. Um.
0: I'm so excited for it. Um, I think do you think that what the documentary shows is gonna go beyond, you know, the evidence that was presented in the serial podcast and and, and you know, even your book went into more detail as well.
1: Yeah. There's very I mean, to be honest, Serial was a great story, but there were no lawyers involved. There's there's very little evidence presented in Serial. All okay. they did was examine was the state that happened. My book, and our my podcast, Undisclosed, looks at a lot of evidence. But what Amy and her team did was go way well, well beyond it. Well beyond it. So uh, there is stuff in there that I, I even, the first time I saw, I didn't know. I didn't know about, there's new evidence that I didn't know existed. So oh, really? It, yeah, it totally. And I have, I've seen the first three episodes when they were done. Um, again, I wasn't involved in producing them. She was very unbiased. She had her own investigative team. Uh, I still haven't seen the fourth episode, but... Um, Certainly, she brings new evidence to
0: light that is not covered anywhere. Okay, well, wow, that's really good to know. I think um, for many of my listeners who have, you know, avidly been following Adnan's case, um, we're really looking forward to this documentary. Um, I want to say thank you so much for joining us on this interview and, um, you know, wishing you all the best there your you. other, um, I know you're fighting other criminal justice issues on your other podcast or trying to talk about the exoneration of other um, people who yeah. you feel have been wrongfully convicted. Do you mind telling my listeners what's your other podcasts that are out well, there? My,
1: so Serial was not my podcast, just so people understand. I was on it, but it wasn't my podcast. My podcast is Undisclosed, and I work with two other lawyers, and we do wrongful conviction cases, and the first season is actually 30 episodes on a don's case. Uh, and after that, we did, we've did we done like 12 other wrongful conviction cases. So we are always working with other wrongfully convicted people and their lawyers to help them get another chance in court. Uh, and then I host a podcast called The 45th, which is a, a weekly political podcast um, about this administration. And, and uh, I, I encourage people to listen. There's a lot of familiar voices we have some celebrities on. It's, it's, a, it's a good listen every week to figure out what's happening with Trump and what he's trying to do to all of us. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. I
0: appreciate it. All right, folks, that's our segment for today. I hope you all enjoyed listening to this interview with Rabia Chaudhry and understood that our criminal justice system is very much broken and very much um, detrimental to people of color. And and I hope you all will realize that, you know, while the Texas legislature is... um, is trying to implement certain legislation to amend these types of issues that again it's still up to you to be able to try and demand change for the way our criminal justice system is. Um, one of those ways is again contact, contacting your state reps to tell them about these bills that need to um, be passed or The other thing is that uh, Ravya Choudhury mentioned was making sure to go vote and and voting for the district attorneys is exceptionally important. Um, That vote just happened this past November, but um, those votes are going to come again. So again, it's very, very important to understand who is on your ballot and all those down-ballot people, um, while you may not think is very important, they're actually um, responsible for the lives of thousands of people. So I hope you all will understand that for upcoming elections. And, um, again, um, I hope you all uh, will stay tuned and are looking forward to uh, our interviews for the next couple weeks. Um, We will be interviewing many other inspirational women, um, whether they're running for office or fighting for other social justice causes. Um, And I hope you all appreciated this interview to kick off Women's History Month with uh, one of the biggest um, social justice fighters, who is Rabia Chaudhry. Don't forget, let's get educated, let's get wiser, and let's start giving a hoot. Until next time.